Our Father, we thank you this morning that even in the wet and hot and humid weather, we can gather in a place that is very comfortable and we can gather in freedom and we can gather to learn how to be better students of your word. So help us to grasp the things that are before us where there's questions. We pray that you would provide us the answers and where there's confusion, give us clarity. But let us better understand your words that we can better understand you and serve and love and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we began our study of what are the four, what I'm calling the four general principles of hermeneutics. The first is the literal principle, and then the contextual principle that, Lord willing, we will uh, see next week, and then the grammatical principle and the theological principle. And so these are sort of a condensation of all these many laws, general laws of hermeneutics, and I call them general laws because they apply to any genre. So, Lord willing, what I want to do is after we examine the four general rules, is spend the rest of our course examining some specific principles that are genre-specific for helping us better interpret the Bible. As we've been looking at the literal principle, we've noticed that meaning is defined by the authorial intent, and the literal principle is really saying, let the Bible speak for itself, respect the Bible as literature, read the Bible for what it plainly says. Why? Because the meaning of the text is defined by what the original authors meant. And so you can't just come to the text with your ideas. You will. You do. That's inevitable. We have our own ideas. We can't study the Bible in a vacuum. But we must lay aside our opinions and subject ourselves to what the text is saying, recognizing that it is the text itself that defines the objective meaning. All right, so we've looked at then this normal literary, literary approach we should be taking to the text, and we saw how to honor the literal principle, we must first of all default to the literal reading of the text. And this is just the most natural, simplest way to understand any piece of literature, is that we naturally, nobody has to teach us to do this, but we default to the literal sense of the text. While at the same time, we must be aware of exceptions to the literal reading. And we were looking last week at one of those exceptions, being figures of speech. There are many different kinds. Certainly, the list of things that we covered last week was far from exhaustive. And there are many that we could look at. Some, some figures of speech that are misunderstood in Scripture involve some pretty big errors that people have made, unfortunately. So this is a big deal, even though it shouldn't be. It's, it's a pretty simple thing. And, and anywhere in literature, we see figures of speech used. We use it all the time. Uh, the other sort of exception to literal reading that I want to talk about, though, and this is where we did not get to last week, is language of perspective. Language of perspective. And I have a couple instances of language of perspective. Don't be alarmed, but they involve some big words. The first is anthropomorphic language. And that word, as long as it is, right, is, uh, can be broken down to a couple Greek words. The first of which, anthropos, where we get our term for man. Anthropology is the study of man. An anthropomorphic expression or language is language that is describing or ascribing human attributes to something. Now, this something could be something inanimate. Uh, perhaps an example, well, yeah, I guess perhaps you could say Jesus, you know, when he curses the fig tree, 
it's like, was, what was the point of that? Did the fig tree understand him? No, what was the point of it? Well, for one thing, you could say it was a symbol. The fig tree was a symbol of Israel that is so plain in the context because of what Jesus is doing in the temple. But the point of cursing the fig tree is that Jesus is, in a sense, ascribing to it human attributes to, uh, to show us this is a symbol of the nation of Israel. We find different times where animals or vegetation can be described in human ways. That's not because they have personal, uh, personal mind or anything. It's anthropomorphism. But here is what I'm really concerned about when I take us to this. Sometimes serious questions have been raised concerning God over this language of perspective. And that's because we know God is immutable. He doesn't change. God is sovereign. The Bible tells us God is omniscient. He knows all things. And yet, there are times in Scripture where God is sometimes described in terms of feeling sorry or regretting. Okay, well, you can go to 1 Samuel 15. Let me show you one of these this morning. And 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. This is Samuel the uh, priest who is going to anoint, or, or who really has anointed King Saul already. But Saul has not been living for God, and so God sends his word to him, verse 11. And this is what God says to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. God says, I regret I made Saul king. What do we make of this? Is God not sovereign? Is God change his mind? Uh, If he changes his mind, he's not truly uh, immutable. He would be mutable in some very real sense. So here's my first question for you is really, did, did God know, did God know what Saul would do when he made him king? Did he know everything Saul would do? Absolutely. Okay, he already knew what he would do with David before, before he made Saul king. So God knows all things. That's clear from scripture. Does the fact that God knew what Saul would do mean that God was somehow indifferent to Saul's actions? Like, hey, I know what Saul's going to do before he does it, so I don't really care. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect me in any way. Is that true? Well, this text, for one thing, seems to be absolutely denying that uh, God is in some very real way impacted, affected, that is, he has affections, and God has strong affections with regards to our sin. Here he uses this language, I regret I have made Saul king, because he's turned his back from following me. God feels. God is truly a personal being. In fact, God, just consider this, as God and as a personal God, an infinite God, must have feelings that are infinitely far more complex than ours. So, yes, God does feel. God knows what Saul's going to do. God feels displeased with what Saul is doing. And just because he knew what Saul would do and is sovereign over it doesn't mean he's indifferent to it. No, he feels very strongly about it. Interestingly enough, if you look down now at verse 29... The, the scriptures actually go on to affirm, God will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The point of the language then in this whole context is not to indicate to us in 1 Samuel 15, 11, that God makes mistakes, God makes decisions that somehow he later regrets. No, you're missing the whole point. And you have to read this in context. 
The point is that God uses a literary device here to describe his strong resentment of Saul's actions. And God uses this, he describes his disgust with Saul in human terms. Terms that you and I can readily identify with. Why would God do that? Why would God use such language to describe his feelings, to say something like, I regret? When God, you never change your mind. Why would he do that? Well, a couple weeks ago, we said God lists to us. God lists to us. In fact, Calvin was the one to say it. When he speaks to us in his word, he is accommodating his revelation to our minds. It's the accommodation principle. And so here, that's why there is anthropomorphic language used of God. And my question to anyone, I was talking to somebody recently who had some problems with some of these ways God described himself. My, my question to them, my question to anyone struggling with why God would use anthropomorphic language is, do you read much? Do you read much? Because if you understand literature, this really isn't a problem. But it seems to be the pattern is when people don't understand literature or they don't read much poetry, they don't understand how these things are used. And they really then come to the Bible with their own perspective and are unwilling to try to understand what God is saying or his intent of using that sort of language. Another kind of perspectival language, language of perspective, is phenomenological language. Another big word. But it's a word, again, indicating that this is a language of perspective. This is language that is describing a person, a thing, or even perhaps an event from the perspective of the author. I want to give you an example. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16, I believe, we see God telling us that he made the sun to rule the day, right? The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light, which would be the moon, to rule the night. So, of course, skeptics will say, look at that. The Bible says that the moon has its own light. Now, here's the fallacy. Here's the problem with, with coming to the Bible with such a mindset and criticism. That language is plainly phenomenological. It might surprise you, but the Bible is not making the claim, necessarily, that the moon gives its own light, but simply that it represents a light. In fact, we, we can read on some nights by the light of the moon. There's no argument about that. So phenomenologically, the moon represents a light. Another example, many times the Bible talks about the rising of the sun. What does that mean? That the Bible is teaching you the sun is actually rotating around the earth? That's silly. We still use this expression today. And by it, uh, you don't correct me and say, I'm sorry, Nathan, you just said the sun rose this morning. Do you deny the heliocentric theory? Are you pre-Copernican? How ridiculous. We all cut each other slack. We understand this is a phenomenological expression. Well, guess what? The Bible uses that too. Another example would be Isaiah 40, verse 22. We read about uh, the circle of the earth. <laughs> the earth is described as a circle. So some have said, oh, look. It says the earth's a circle, which means it's flat. And you say, what on earth? Somebody told me, yeah, if, if the earth was a sphere or a globe, it would have said that, but it says circle. And circles are uh, not three-dimensional. That's ridiculous. <laughs> because if you look at the earth from any direction, from space, you'll notice it looks like a circle. It's phenomenological language. Well, I hope we understand that. That is language of expression. In addition to the figures of speech, symbols, and such, language of perspective are idioms. Idioms. Idioms are, are some of the most difficult things in Scripture because if we don't have a good background or handle on the language, 
or how some of these phrases or, or colloquial expressions of the time were used, we could be puzzled as modern readers reading a English translation, what on earth? Why did this writer say this in this way? But an understanding that we're dealing with an idiom may help us. Now, I just thought I'd humor you for a moment and give you some examples of idiom fails. I came across some of these. Not all the times does a literal translation work, right? Uh, here's somebody has got a uh, deformed man passage. That's not even, <laughs> that's not politically correct for sure. What about this one? I got a kick out of this. <laughs> Chicken of your mother. Now that may be a literal translation, but that just doesn't work in the English. Okay, that expression sounds like an insult. What'd you say about my mother? Um, <laughs> what about this? Just bring your hands. Well, some languages might, I don't know. <laughs> free toilets. <laughs> I think I know what they mean, but um, free toilets can mean something else. All right. Execution in progress. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there could be some comical translation fails when we simply translate from one language into another language, literally. And we use idioms all the time. We say things like, what's up? And by the way, I don't really appreciate those nerds that are like, what do you mean, what's up? You know, it's the ceiling or sky. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time with you. <laughs> don't be that kind of a person, all right? Idioms are something we use in every language, in every culture we have them. And we can study idioms in the Bible, at least categorize them perhaps, somewhat subjectively, but in terms of easy idioms, that is where the meaning is self-explanatory, or those idioms that are less easy, they are more difficult, and that is where the meaning of that idiom is somehow lost to time. Because we don't use it, and even uh, in those ancient cultures, of course, they're not around, they don't use it. And so we wonder, what did they mean by that? Well, let me give you an example of an easy idiom from Genesis 4-6. God asks Cain, why has your face fallen? <laughs> That's literal reading of the Hebrew. Why is your face fallen? I don't think any one of us is going to say, what? He needed a face lift like his, his face. No, what's the sense? It's very simple. He, the guy had a long face. It's one of the things we would say. He was angry. He was sad. And some translations will just say that. Why, why are you angry? That's a valid translation, but you see, it's an idea for idea. I do value those translations, or I, I would say I give priority in preaching at least to a translation that is more literal, because I think you deserve to know exactly how something was said and not simply what it means, right? So that, that would be an example of easy ones. There's a lot of easy idioms. Um, I think, by the way, Genesis 11, when... The Tower of Babel, at the Tower of Babel, you have all these nations coming together and they say, let us make a tower, build for us a tower whose top will reach into heaven. I think that they are using that in a figurative sense. I don't think they really believe they were going to build a tower and walk into heaven through some cloud portal. Okay, I just think that's silly, especially when we know what we know about ziggurats and, and the technology they had available back at that time. But they're using this expression for what? They're going to build a tower that uh, it's a temple. This is what ziggurats were, by the way. The temple was at the top. And so they're going to have access to heaven through this temple. Interesting. More difficult idioms would be an example like Proverbs 25. Some of us men talked about this 
couple weeks ago, Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. God says, if your enemy is hungry, give him to eat, food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. What? If I do good to my enemy, I will heap burning coals on his head? So some have said, oh, this is God saying, yeah, you do good to your enemy, and you just kill him with kindness. You really want to get back at him? Don't, don't fight fire with fire. I mean, you'd say something nice, and you're really going to cut him a low blow. No, that's not what God's saying. He's not saying that's how you're going to get under his skin. God is not encouraging you to kill your enemies with kindness. The point of this idiom is perhaps best represented by what was an ancient Egyptian practice. And that was where the, the, um, the penitent, those who were seeking repentance, would carry on their head a cauldron or a, a pot, um, a basin of burning coals. And carrying this basin of burning coals above their head was to demonstrate their contrition. Well, if that's true, it certainly makes a lot of sense. He's saying you uh, give to your enemy, you love your enemy, you do good to your enemy, and guess what? God is going to bring them to the point of contrition. God is going to bring them to brokenness, not you. You leave vengeance with God. All right. Well, again, if you use a more functional rather than formal translation of the Bible, a more idea-for-idea versus word-for-word translation of the Bible, you may not even come up against a lot of these difficult idioms. But I want you to know they're there, and it does have to do a lot with why there's difficulty at times over interpreting the Bible and making sense of it. So a normal literary approach to Scripture, in a normal literary approach to Scripture, we default to the literal reading of the text. We are aware of exceptions to the literal reading, but we must beware of interpretive extremes. What would those be? Well, there's a couple I want to share with you, and they are there in your outline. Beware of interpretive extremes. You'll see this in this image here. We have a road, which is representing the plain sense. And we said if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, or you're going to fall to either side and end up with nonsense, right? That is the either side of the road. Allegorism on one side, hyper-literalism to the other. So let's talk about that. When we say we must interpret the scriptures literally, we do not mean we must ignore plain figures of speech, language of perspective, or idiomatic expressions. No, we must account for those things. We must respect the Bible as literature. The literal principle is what we could call the literary principle, really, in that sense. And I think then we should distinguish the literal approach to Scripture from what we might call a hyper-literal approach. Or we could say, we must interpret the Scriptures literally, yes, but not with literalism, okay? I I think, in fact, that the term hyper-literalism gets the point across better because it's showing us, again, and here's the definition I have for you, hyper-literalism is an excessive confidence in a literal interpretation to the point of dismissing plain figurative language, right? There's the definition for you. So sometimes people will deny what is plain, plain in the text in the sense that they're overlooking what is plainly figurative. And a good example of this is uh, this flat earth doctrine. Have you heard of this? 
I, it wasn't until a few years ago, I don't think I'd ever met anybody who really believed the earth was flat. I mean, you hear it, maybe you hear about somebody who knew somebody else. But then I met this young man who literally believed this. What do you tell somebody? You want to take him out into space, right, and, and show him everything. But what, what struck me, what intrigued me the most was that he was trying to make his case from the Bible. And to him, it was very cardinal, a, a cardinal matter of faith and doctrine, that if you believe Earth is round, you know, you know, you're like in pact with the Antichrist or something. So I thought, whoa, this guy is whacked out. But I, I was humored by it, so I met with him, and uh, he, I said, show me. Where does the Bible teach us? Well, he began showing me all these places in the Bible where it says that the Lord set the earth on its pillars. You know, he, he laid the pillars of the earth. Uh, Psalm 75.3, Asaph sings, The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I, uh, this is the Lord speaking, who have firmly set its pillars. <laughs> well, I had to tell him I was aware of these texts, but that they said nothing about the shape of the earth. Okay, and that was, it, it was completely wrong. He was completely missing the authorial intent of those texts. And by extension, really God. He was missing God's intent and reading into the text much more than God intended. And how could I say that? Well, this is poetry. Ironically, you know, First Samuel 2, 8, I think it is, another text he was reading to. This is Hannah singing about the Lord. And the point of God speaking about the pillars of the earth and, and how he is the one who laid those pillars of the earth is not to say the earth is literally sitting on a giant tortoise or the earth is uh, literally sitting on four great pillars or whatever, but it's to speak about the Lord laying the foundation of the earth and the Lord himself stabilizing it. In fact, in Galatians 2, I don't think anybody's troubled when Paul alludes to Peter, James, and John as pillars in the church. I don't think we... Yeah, we don't take that literally. That's just ridiculous. They were foundational in what Christ was doing at the church at the time. Actually, the Bible says in Job 26, 7, God hangs the earth on nothing. What do you do with that? Then you have a cosmology where there's these four pillars or something, and then and they're just hanging on nothing. And just You could see the, how bizarre this is, but this is hyper-literalism. Another example would be the uh, Latter-day Saints, Church of the Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormonism, teaches, and I quote, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. Do you have a problem with that? That God has a body? God is material, they say. He has a material body, and by the way, he procreates. Whoa, this is Mormonism, one of their interesting tenets. Where did they come up with this idea? Well, this is hyper-literalism at its worst, and uh, this kind of a hyper-literal approach to Scripture obviously is a flat denial of many plain and biblical doctrines concerning God. But they also support, allegedly, this doctrine of God having a body by misreading plain anthropomorphic language, figurative language. Well, uh, another example would be I heard somebody once who was attempting to argue that Jesus was... Yeah, he was put on the cross, but he didn't actually die. And the reason we can know that is because in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus gives the example of Jonah. He, he, he identifies his time in the tomb with Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish. And since we know that Jonah didn't die in the belly of the great fish, then therefore, Jesus is, for Jesus' words to be true about him 
uh, and Jonah being the sign of him in the tomb, we must believe Jesus was not dead in the tomb. Is that convincing? You know what that is? It's a classic overloading of metaphor. (laughs) He is reading far too much in. In fact, I know some people who believe that Jonah actually was dead in the belly of the fish or whatever. We know other people that, of course, deny that. I think that we know that happened. Jesus used it for a reason, this story as representative of himself. But that was not Jesus' point. In fact, the Bible is very plain. Jesus says he's going to die. So I don't, you can't get away with this, but I'm just giving you some examples. People that don't know how to read literary devices. And why should all of this figurative language in the Bible not upset our cosmology or our view of God? Well, for the same reason, I guess, that when you go to pick up a copy of Sports Illustrated and you read that some pitcher punched out 10 batters last night, I don't think you're going to conclude from that that somehow boxing has been added to baseball. And now the pitchers are punching out batters and and they're in some kind of a brawl. Really? You you just got to know a little bit of baseball. No, this is a figure of speech. It's a strikeout. But uh, we deal with this all the time. Somehow when we come to a book that is far removed from us and we have those gaps, language gap, culture gap, time gap, circumstantial gap, we make absurd assumptions and, uh, and people who have these absurd, hyper-literal assumptions about the Bible can be very arrogant. They can be very dogmatic, and they can be very anti-scholastic, which is a part of their problem, and they don't read. And that's another part of the problem. So it's very hard to help these people, but um, we need to love them and try to do what we can to bring them to reason correctly in the scriptures. So the errors of hyper-literalism, just understand, is that people don't respect the Bible as literature. They ignore the literary genres. They just want to make it say whatever they think it says. And they fail to acknowledge that what God has revealed to them, allegedly, he will make plain to others also. Now, the problem, I'm saying people will be like, I, I got my, alone in my Bible, and this is what I came up with. Well, you should probably go and check five different commentaries of men or women who have given their life to study the scriptures. They know the original language. They've studied all the context and everything. And just see, just see if anybody agrees with your idea. And if they don't, maybe that's a good reason to check your interpretation. But uh, a lot of times people don't want to do that. And we say, what I got, I got directly from God. I got directly from the Holy Spirit. So we've already dealt with that. But that would certainly be an abuse of the Holy Spirit, an abuse of how to interpret Scripture. So hyperliteralism, that is a problem. Dismissing plain figurative language. Here's the other side of the ditch. Allegorism. What is allegorism? Allegorism is, I'll put this up for you here. Allegorism presupposes there is some hidden meaning beneath the plain reading of the text. An allegory is a story, a poem, a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a, a moral or a political one. And so the allegorical method is presupposing there must be some hidden, moral, spiritual, typological meaning beneath the plain sense of what's going on here. And I'll give you an example from Augustine in his commentary on the Good Samaritan. Now listen to this. You all know the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, right? This is Augustine. He says, and and by the way, he was representing this Western Alexandrian school of thought in his time. 
they wanted to take an allegorical approach to scripture. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace, from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality. Because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. Thieves, you know the thieves in the story, he says, are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him for half dead because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead and therefore called half dead. The priest, oppressed, uh, the priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could not profit, uh, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord Himself is signified by this name. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine is the exhortation to work with fervent spirit. The beast that He sets the man on is the flesh in which He deigned to come to us. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church where travelers returning to their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage. The morrow is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two pence, two pence that the Samaritan pays the innkeeper, are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and that which is to come. The innkeeper is the apostle Paul. The uh, supererogatory payment is either his counsel or celibacy council of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel wow okay now i have to give it to augustine very creative and kind of like the part about the priest and the levite you know being kind of the old covenant the good samaritan well look you can you can find things like that throughout all the bible but here's the problem so can people that entirely disagree with Christianity. And we have to ask ourselves, was that the authorial intent of Jesus' parable? Did he have the apostle Paul in mind in this celibacy and all that? No, this is going beyond what God intended. And whereas the reasons for hyper-literalism most often seem to be plain ignorance of literary devices, a lot of times just a lack of, of education, to be frank. Um, and, and among other things, I don't want to oversimplify, but I would say certainly the reasons for al- an allegorical approach to Scripture, looking for hidden meaning, is, at least in history, far more complex. There are many reasons people have done this, taking this, these approaches to Scripture. Uh, to this day, you'll meet people that are looking for types in every minutest detail of the Bible. And that's why... Uh, <laughs> My former pastor told me about something his, one of his professors said, you know, some of those rings in the tabernacle were just there to hold the curtain up, you know? Like, there's not some kind of spiritual meaning behind everything. Please, stop it. Just don't, don't try to make more out of the Bible than what God meant out of it. You're confusing the issue. Others will try to give numerical value to letters and words. The rabbis did this, remember, letterism. And so they start creating the Bible like it's a code book. Others will do it by just taking the numbers in the Bible. They build a whole system of numerology that you don't actually believe in Christ or you don't have the Holy Spirit if you don't agree with their interpretation of when Jesus is coming. And they'll actually set a date. 
And sometimes well-meaning Christians are seeking just to derive meaning out of the Bible that's immediate relevant. It's immediately relevant to their personal life. Because they have to know who they're going to marry tomorrow. They're going to read whatever they want to into that text. And they'll be convinced. They'll tell you it's the Holy Spirit. But you have to bring them back to, is that the authorial intent of that text? Now, others will do this. They will allegorize the scripture, look for deeper meaning, because they want to avoid what they see are as embarrassing incidents in the Bible. I don't want to believe that Jonah was actually you know, swallowed by some fish. So that never really happened. That's just all some moral, uh, moral value, a, a proverb, uh, Aesop's fable. That's what you can take to any miraculous account of the Bible. And that's what people do with the ministry of Jesus and all that. That is no, uh, no new tale to us. So there's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons that people will allegorize the Bible, try to take a different approach. And we don't have to know all of where they're coming from. I think what we need to be careful from is to challenge them to ask why, certainly, but to bring them back to the plain authorial intent of the text. And we will do that, by the way, by using the other three general principles of hermeneutics as well that we will go on to study in subsequent weeks. Now, I do want to mention this because this is important. A lot of times, at this point... (laughs) In, in the discussion, if, if we're talking about allegorism and looking for hidden meaning, someone who's well-versed in the New Testament may bring up Galatians 4.22 through 31. What about Galatians 4? Because there, Paul explicitly says he is allegorizing. Well, I don't deny with that. I don't deny that at all that Paul says it. He wants us to know it. So if you have more questions about this text, by the way, you can ask me following. I don't have much time. But I will just say this in regards to it. In this text, Galatians 4, 22 through 31, Paul is alluding to the story of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael, who was by Hagar, the bondwoman, and Isaac, who was by Sarah, the free woman. And Ishmael was a child by the flesh, connected to Abraham by the flesh, yes, but he wasn't the child of promise. Isaac was the child God promised. And so what Paul is going to do is, by way of allegory, he uses this this contrast between Hagar, her son, uh, by the flesh, and even the Mosaic Covenant then. Those who, he could say, hey, you're connected to God by the flesh or through these exterior or external laws that God gave at Mount Sinai. You keep the food laws, you observe all these things. But then he contrasts that with this promise God gave to Abraham, which, by the way, was not displaced by the Mosaic Covenant. And, uh, and in fact, the Abrahamic covenant has overtones of the new covenant. That all the nations of the world will be blessed in Abraham. But guess what? There's a lot of people connected to Abraham by the flesh that aren't a part of the new covenant. They aren't really blessed, are they? And so that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's contrasting. And why is he drawing this contrast? He is doing so because if you read Galatians in its context, you'll appreciate he's drawing a contrast between the Judaizers, who are all about the law, and those who follow the true gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. So just a couple statements I want to point out about Galatians 4. Number one, allegorizing, I'm just going to show you a contrast between allegorizing as done in a wrong way and what Paul's doing here. Allegorizing is is what says the historical meaning is less significant, if even true. It's just not the focus. The deeper meaning, it's the hidden meaning, that 
is the bottom line of this text. The deeper meaning in the system of allegorism, this approach to the Bible, is the exposition of Genesis 16. That is, those who take this ideology of allegorism would say, I am expositing the text. Genesis 16, the story of Hagar being cast out, that uh, the real meaning of that text is to tell us that the Jewish people will be cast out for a time uh, of God's blessing. And God will turn to the Gentiles. Um, and then they will say everything in the Old Testament, of course, may be allegorized. And they will use this example I gave you from Galatians 4 to try to warrant that. But here's what Paul's doing in contrast. Paul is not denying the historical meaning is true and significant. By using this instance of Hagar and, and Sarah in Genesis 16, he's not denying what happened factually and historically in Genesis 16. Parallels are being drawn here to make a point, which Paul makes plain in the context. It's a contrast between the Judaizers, false gospel, and the true gospel of Christ. Now, Paul does not say that allegory, this allegory he's giving, was the true exposition. It isn't. He knows that. And when Paul allegorizes, he says he's doing so. Because he wants you to know, I'm not giving you the exposition of the text. I am giving you an illustration. I am, by way of analogy, making a point. So while Paul does use an Old Testament narrative in an allegorical way, he's using it. He's doing so simply to illustrate a doctrinal point elsewhere established from Scripture plainly. Paul is not giving approval then to allegorism as though it were a legitimate way for us to see deeper meaning in the Bible wherever we wanted, please. All right, so why should we be concerned about this approach to the Bible? Well, the problems with an allegorical approach is that it denies Scripture's simplicity, it denies Scripture's objectivity. It, uh, you know, again, if, if the plain text isn't the meaning, if the authorial intent doesn't define the meaning, then the meaning can be whatever we feel it to be, whatever we have an opinion about it being. And uh, allegorism disregards the authorial intent. But we said hermeneutics is not the art and science of Bible imagination, it's the art and science of Bible interpretation. We're not coming to the text saying, what can we put into it? What can we see there? But what is there? We're trying to draw out what God has meant in his word. Asking, what did this mean to the original author before asking, what does this mean to me? And ultimately, allegorism, by way of all that, disregarding authorial intent and all, it, it, it displaces scripture's authority. I, as the interpreter, am now the sole authority. I sit over scripture. And this is, in effect, what happened in the Middle Ages. This is why we had a dark age of true theology. I'm not saying that nobody believed the true gospel of Christ. There were always those uh, morning stars of the Reformation and such. But the Roman Catholic Church was dominating, assuming control over the text by... Uh, and, they, and, and because they said... Well, the true meaning is some hidden meaning. Then, or that's the legitimate meaning. What they could do effectively then is drive a wedge between the laity, the simple boy that drives the plow. He can't read the Bible for himself. And the, the uh, clergy over here. Because the priest, he really knows what's going on in that text. You see? And you can't just read the Bible for yourself. That's a dangerous thing to do. You might just come up with a plain meaning. Oh, my goodness. We don't want that to happen. We would lose our power. Well, that's exactly what happened in the Protestant Reformation. People coming back to the plain sense of the Bible. Of course, a lot of times, 
at the root of all this is pride. There's something ecstatic about somebody being able to go to the Bible and say, I just see something that nobody's seen for the past 2,000 years. And, uh, and now those kind of fools, with nothing to claim to their name, are able to get on the Internet and immediately have a soapbox and an audience of thousands of other fools who will give them an ear. Don't waste your time on people like that, all right? There's just, there's just not enough time in the world to listen to stupid, right? And uh, there, there's a lot of good that we would be depriving ourselves if we tried to do so. But you will meet people that have these problems or come to the, to the Bible with a very ridiculous approach, and so I just want you to be aware of what the anchor is. When they say, that's just your interpretation, you say, sure, if that's just my interpretation, let's let the text decide. Let's go to the text, let's look at it, and we'll let God arbitrate by his word. Um, this is why I love expository preaching. There's no, nothing fancy about it. It's just, let's just get up and, and teach you what's in the word. And anybody can do that if they will put the time into studying God's word faithfully. So how can you avoid pursuing a deeper meaning that's not there? Take the simplest approach to scripture. Be careful not to interpret something as symbolic unless the text itself presents you with a clear referent for that symbol or that figure. You've got to be able to prove it from the text. You can't just be creative now. You've got to prove it from the text. What is this a symbol of? Does the text itself make this plain? And then limit your interpretation of meaning to the original author's intent. Always go back to that. And, like with hyperliteralism, acknowledge that what God has revealed to you in Scripture, he has also made plain to others. You're not some super priest or something where God's going to communicate a truth to you alone that nobody else is going to know about. He just wants you to be the new Messiah to the world or Joseph Smith or something. Oh, Lord, help us. All right. The last thing to consider, and I don't have much time, with regards to the literal principle is the fact that not all scripture is equally plain. And this is why this is important. Because the literal principle is to, in one sense, read the Bible for what it plainly says. Well, one objection to this would be, what do we do, Pastor, when the Bible isn't plain? I mean, let's not beat around the bush. Are there some scriptures that are difficult to understand? I see some of you nodding. Yes. Okay, the Bible itself concedes this. And so what I want to do is just uh, spend the last few minutes here talking about what the clarity of Scripture means. The, the Protestants, we, we traditionally recognize this as the perspicuity of Scripture, means the clarity, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. That means Scripture is clear enough, but not all equally clear, okay? Um, not every portion of Scripture is equally plain to us. There's milk, there's meat, there's some things difficult to be understood, 2 Peter 3.16 explains. All right, so what I want to do is just explain then, uh, this is actually from Larry Pettigrew, he identifies eight aspects of perspicuity or scripture's clarity. I want to share them with you, and I want you to know this is so important because this is what defines us in one of many ways from Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy, where you have to go to a priest, you don't go through a priest, Right? Um, because scripture is plain. Here's what that means. Number one, scripture is clear enough for the simplest person to live by. That's what Psalm 19.7 says. It makes wise the simple. The Bible, secondly, is deep enough for readers of the highest intellectual ability. I mean, just consider that over the past two millennia, there have been more books written on the Bible than any other book, and they're still being written, and we still haven't gone to the depths of what 
the Bible is all about. It is as deep as you can go, you want to go. You'll never exhaust its wealth. Fourthly, Scripture is clear in essential matters. And we could give many examples of this. The gospel, for instance, is plain. A child can get that. Look at John 3.16. That's plain. There are many scriptures. They're simple. In fact, the, the Bible concedes there is milk and there is meat. Hebrews 5.11. So some things are just easy to understand. And that is the essential things. What we must know. Fifthly, or sorry, I, I skipped. Okay, that was number three. Scripture is clear in essential matters. Four is that any obscurity in the Bible is the fault of sinful mankind. Now, there, uh, this is interesting. Wayne Gruner makes a great point here regarding Jesus' own teaching that in a day where we live, where many people are so quick to say, oh, that's your interpretation, or it's so difficult to know what the Bible really means, we need to get back to Jesus and, and examine how he interacted with the people of his time. You know, Jesus never once says, oh, you're mistaken because the Bible is just too complicated or this is too deep. But the blame is always placed on the interpreters. I mean, you can see multiple places in the gospel again and again, Jesus answers questions with statements like, have you not read? Have you never read in the scriptures? Or even, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Interesting. God, Christ himself, faults this obscurity in the Bible with us. More could be said, but uh, fifthly, interpreters of Scripture are to use normal means. That's what this idea of Scripture's clarity is. You don't have to open the Bible and throw your finger on something or med- you know, just do something mystical or take a drug. You can use your mind, and we are commanded to. 2 Timothy 2, 14-16, to study Scripture diligently. Sixthly, this idea of Scripture's clarity means that even an unsaved person can understand the plain teaching of Scripture on an external level. And seven, here's the corollary to that, the other side to that. The Holy Spirit must illumine the mind of the reader or hearer of Scripture if he is to understand, don't miss it, the significance. The significance of Scripture. That's what unsaved people just don't get. They can write commentaries on the Bible. Bart Ehrman is a great scholar in many ways who knows a lot more about the New Testament than, than a lot of us. But yet, Bart Ehrman does not understand the significance of Jesus Christ. Because Bart Ehrman doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But finally, number eight, what does the clarity, this doctrine of the clarity of Scripture mean, represent for us? Well, every Christian has both the privilege and opportunity to read and interpret Scripture for himself so that his faith rests on the authority of scripture and not on the authority of a church or an institution boy you need to ground your faith in your understanding your conscience of the word of god that's what martin luther did that's why he would not back down though his life was at stake and recant all of his teachings because he says this is what i see my faith is captive to the word of god what and how i understand it And show me if I'm wrong. Well, that should be our attitude when people challenge our said interpretation of the text. Now, what I want to do when we come back next week is we're going to begin, before we get into the contextual principle, the second of the general principles of hermeneutics, we'll conclude the literal principle briefly by me just dealing with uh, why are there so many different interpretations? If the Bible is plain, why do so many different interpretations exist? It's a great question, and I 
I can't wait to deal with it next week. Uh, again, there's a quiz. They're the same questions from last week, but I think we would do well to be able to answer those. Let's pray.